it's really everybody's responsibility all along the line. It's the responsibility of, of federal law enforcement and, and to a degree the intelligence community to spot corruption when it's going on and to prosecute it where appropriate. And it's the responsibility of you know, businessmen and lawyers, public officials not to partake in it. Welcome to the Hughes Hubbard Anti-Corruption and Internal Investigation Practice Group's podcast, All Things Investigations. The Hughes Hubbard Anti-Corruption and Internal Investigation Practices Group represents many of the premier companies around the world, providing advice on issues spanning the full anti-corruption and compliance spectrum. In this podcast, host Tom Fox and members of the Hughes Hubbard Anti-Corruption and Internal Practice Group will highlight some of the key legal issues involved in white collar and other investigations, both domestically and internationally. We will tackle topical issues involved in investigations, as well as explore how companies can prevent and detect issues that arise in conducting investigations on a worldwide basis. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode. I'm absolutely thrilled to have back with me Kevin Carroll. Kevin, first of all, welcome back to the pod. Thanks so much, Tom. It's always a pleasure. Kevin, the reason I was so thrilled to ask you to come back was you wrote an article for, I think it was Law 360 back in late November entitled, Durham Russia Probe Acquittals Show Need for FISA Reform. And I have a general knowledge of what FISA is. I think most of us have a general knowledge, but you really drilled down into FISA in a way I had not seen. So I wanted to maybe explore this with you. And as usual, what we do, geek out on a, on a really interesting topic. So could you start off by telling our audience or reminding, I guess, what is FISA? Geekiness is what I'm here for, my friend. So FISA is the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act of 1978. And the U.S. federal government has been collecting signals intelligence since before First World War. U.S. law enforcement has been wiretapping phones since the 19th century. The NYPD had a wire room all the way back during Teddy Roosevelt's time as police commissioner. Eventually, over the course of time, it was found that these capabilities, wiretapping capabilities, signals intelligence capabilities, were being abused by the federal government in some certain circumstances and being used in an unconstitutional manner against U.S. citizens. So in 1978, Senator Edward Kennedy sponsored FISA, which set forth parameters under which the federal government could do national security intelligence collection inside the United States when it came to things that were searches within the meaning of the Fourth Amendment. And it set up the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court to provide warrants of a sort to allow those kinds of surveillances to go forward. So what struck me initially about your article, Kevin, is you tied the investigations by Attorney Durham and the acquittals or failures to successfully prosecute to perhaps needed FISA reform. So what did you see in Durham's investigations and or the court presentations that led you to that conclusion? So one of the, well, the only person to be convicted or to get a guilty plea that, that pled guilty to John Durham was a FBI lawyer named Kevin Kleinsmith, who submitted a false document, knowingly submitted a falsified document to the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court to reauthorize the surveillance of Carter Page, who was an individual who was giving foreign policy advice to uh, Donald Trump's campaign in 2016. Basically, Page, who has an interesting and, and somewhat checkered past, had had contact with Russian intelligence, but was reporting to the U.S. government about his contacts with Russian intelligence. Smith, the FBI lawyer, 
doctored the document to make it seem as if Page had not been cooperating with the U.S. government. And the surveillance was reauthorized on that basis. And it occurred to me, as it had in the past, that it's the kind of error that probably would not have made it past defense counsel. Had defense counsel been, been involved in it, a competent defense counsel would have asked somebody to authenticate the document, would have probed into it. But that doesn't happen before FISA because it's an entirely ex parte proceeding. You have these federal judges, district judges, who are picked by the Chief Justice of the United States, many of whom have very little experience with national security matters. And they just take the representations of the FBI and the Department of Justice before them. And there's no opportunity to put the government to its proof. So I think something that would be useful would be to have a security cleared federal public defender at the disposal of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court to try to poke holes in some of these applications. Because the statistics that I've read are unfortunate. In a period of several years, for example, the FISA court approved over 8,000 applications while disapproving only one. It could be argued that perhaps all of the applications were, were so well-grounded that there was no question you know, that they should be granted. But I'd be surprised if it's at a ratio of 8,000 to 1. And here we saw in the, uh, the case of the reauthorization of the surveillance on Carter Page that indeed it shouldn't have been you know, reauthorized and they needed to fake a document to do it. I recall the fight to even establish the FISA courts. And when they were, I think the Bush administration finally acceded to that request. That may be incorrect, but the FISA court was established. And I, for one, felt that if we had judicial oversight, basically a second set of eyes, that would be enough. But I guess perhaps we've evolved a little bit past simply needing the court where we need someone testing the allegations brought to these courts as well. Is that kind of where you're headed? I agree. I mean, if you think of the process of getting a search warrant you know, from a federal magistrate, that's also an ex parte proceeding, I'll admit. But your average federal magistrate has really substantial experience with the criminal justice system. They might be a, a former criminal defense lawyer or former federal prosecutor themselves, for example. And eventually, all the information that's gathered pursuant to a Title III wiretap or the execution of a search warrant is going to be turned over to defense counsel. And defense counsel is going to have an opportunity, if appropriate, to have a suppression hearing you know, about saying that the evidence was unconstitutionally gathered and shouldn't be admitted into evidence. None of that is present, really, with the FISA court. You've got judges who may not know much about national security that have to rely entirely on the representations of the government. Typically, someone who is the target of FISA surveillance is not warned of that. And unless the case does end up going to a criminal charge and trial, they're probably not ever going to have access to the information that was collected against them. I think because of the lack of other safeguards, they should put somebody else in the room whose duty it is to question the assertions of the government. But you went a little bit further than even suggesting it would be appropriate to have a security cleared federal public defender. You talked about having someone, a person who had taken something called the field tradecraft force that trains CIA military officers and law enforcement personnel. Could you tell us what that is and how you believe that would facilitate greater justice in this process? Sure. So I'm a former CIA case officer. I, I took and, and passed that course, which was a challenging course. And one of the problems, a common problem in two of the other cases that John Doran brought, both which resulted in acquittals of the defendants, is that you had FBI officials who were not criminal investigators and not intelligence officers basically trying to play spy. You had the general counsel of the FBI and you had an intelligence analyst at the FBI both of whom are, I'm sure, a great lawyer and a great intelligence analyst, respectively, yeah, basically trying to conduct intelligence operations. And they made a hash. And what they ended up doing was then having the Justice Department pursue 18 U.S.C. 1001 false statements charges 
against people that had come to the FBI proffering information about what they thought were counterintelligence risks involved with the candidacy of Donald Trump. I think it's really a bad idea. And the Bureau should set a firm line that the only people that are allowed to conduct intelligence operations, counterintelligence operations, investigations, should be their sworn FBI Academy trained uh, FBI agents, or when appropriate, working joint with the CIA with case officers who are graduates of the field tradecraft course. Counterespionage and intelligence operations are not something that can be learned you know, just from reading a John Le Carre novel you know, and, and watching a couple seasons of The Americans. It's a trade just like any other. And these uh, lawyers and these analysts were ill-advised in trying to do it. Kevin, as we've joked about when we started this podcast, we were going to geek out and go into the weeds. But now I'm going to ask you to maybe step back and look at some of the broader implications. I want to start with the simple fact that you have ascertained that there are 900 separate sanctions against Russia in place. In December, we had our ninth round of sanctions against Russia. There may be additional sanctions leveled against Russia. We are going to enter uncharted territory in an economic war with Russia, even perhaps beyond what you and I grew up with in the Cold War. It seems to me that some of the things you're talking about are going to really move from the political realm, if that's the right word, to a much more nuanced and a fluid business world. And if you agree with that, it seems to me these protections you're talking about might actually become even more important. Sure. I mean, when you look at the consolidated sanctions list, you know, some of the countries that have been sanctioned for a very long time, you know, like Syria, or Iran, you know, since 1979, there's not a whole lot of U.S. business going back and forth with, with Syria and Iran. There still is a fair amount of business going on with Russia. And there was certainly a, a good deal of business going on between the United States and Russia before their invasion of Ukraine in February. And similarly, if, if we end up in a, a more hard-edged conflict with China, the Sino-American economies are deeply tied together. And so what you're likely going to have, what I'm sure is happening right now, and what you'd likely have in any sort of confrontation with China, is a lot of signals intelligence collection going on uh, to look for American companies that are violating sanctions. And that can be perfectly appropriate surveillance if it's being done in the right way for the right reasons. But again, you know, before you start listening to the communications, the business communications of an American company for national security reasons, I'd like to have another person in the room just to play devil's advocate. You've used the term signals intelligence at least two or three times. Could you explain the difference between signals intelligence and human intelligence? Sure. So uh, human intelligence is is a spy going out and speaking to a human source and getting a report that something is going to happen and passing it up the chain. The signals intelligence involves the interception back in the day of you know, telegraphic communications, telephone communications, nowadays more and more email communications, decrypting them when they've been encrypted by a foreign government, translating them, analyzing them, and providing the contents to U.S. policymakers. So the United States spends many billions of dollars a year to have a really leading capability in this area. And as has been publicly discussed because of leaks and for other reasons, they give insight not only into the communications of terrorists that are looking to attack the United States, but adversaries of the United States and even uh, allies of the United States and their leaders, which has been controversial. Certainly the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the attendant sanctions put American businesses in direct confrontation in ways they hadn't previously. But... In December of 2021, we had the Biden administration's statement on combating corruption, which elevated anti-corruption or bribery and corruption to a national security issue. And that's where I really saw many of the things you're talking about, concerns you've raised moving into the business world. 
Are you actively kind of talking to clients or having discussions with them about these changes? And I don't want to pin this on the Biden administration because it seems to be administration agnostic, all moving towards sort of what we all see as the big one with China. I agree with the Biden administration that anti-corruption is a national security issue, especially if, if you look at the other side. It's reasonably assumed that one of the reasons that the Russian military is performing terribly in Ukraine is that there was so much corruption in the Russian government and the Russian economy. Funds were appropriated to provide for tanks and for training for Russian soldiers that you know, the tanks never arrived, the training never took place, and they're getting a, a terrible result on the battlefield. You know, the same could happen, obviously, to the United States or to the United States ally. And senior leaders wouldn't understand that what they've depended on, what they've appropriated for, what they've authorized, isn't really available for the defense of the nation. So I agree that it's a national security issue. Another thing, what I'm seeing is because of the terrible destruction that's been wrought by the Russians in Ukraine, that there's going to be you know, martial plan-sized amounts of money heading into the Ukraine. And I think it's essential for everybody involved, for the good of the Ukrainians, and for the good of any American or European businessmen that are going in there, that there'd be really robust anti-corruption programs, because it would be absolutely tragic if, in addition to all the suffering that the Ukrainian people have been through at the hands of the Russians, if the money that's being sent to help them ends up in the pocket of some corrupt official instead of you know, rebuilding a hospital or a school. That's, I think, an incredibly important point. I have wondered the same thing about the rebuilding of Ukraine wherever that money is derived from, whether it's purloined, Russian oligarch-sanctioned or forfeited money or U.S. taxpayer dollars, how can the U.S. begin to think about those issues and at the government level and then move down to folks like you and I in the private sector? It's really everybody's responsibility all along the line. It's the responsibility of federal law enforcement and, and to a degree the intelligence community to spot corruption when it's going on and to prosecute it where appropriate. And it's the responsibility of you know, businessmen and lawyers, public officials not to partake in it. The Department of Treasury perhaps has been the most outspoken about making clear that they see a government-private entity partnership in the United States as critical in fighting for economic sanctions. The Department of Justice has made similar statements around the FCPA, although perhaps more targeted to preventing corruption rather than economic sanctions. Do you see the government bringing people like us, just as you said, private businesses, private enterprises, as a part of the solution going forward? They should. I think the expertise would be useful. I think that you would get buy-in from people because I think you know most Americans you know, strongly support Ukraine and, and sympathize with what's been going on with the Ukrainian people. And because you know, alleged or actual Ukrainian corruption has become an issue in the, in the U.S. political system in the 2016 election and the 2020 election, that you'd have quite a bit of support from uh, the American business community in making sure that this issue is dealt with on the front end in a helpful and constructive way and not on the back end through really expensive invest criminal investigations, internal investigations, prosecutions, consent agreements, and compliance programs. Well, Kevin, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time for this episode. We're going to link to your article in the show notes as well as your firm profile. I have two criteria for a podcast. Number one, how much did I learn? And number two, how much fun did I have? And we hit 11 on both. So I wanted to thank you again for this. It's, it's a real pleasure, my friend.